I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with stocks reversing course after the S&P 500 did something for the first time in nearly 250 trading days. Futures, however, under a bit of pressure. Also in the red, China's latest read on producer prices, still showing it has a long way to go for its post-COVID recovery. And more trouble for fintech and a Friday morning double whammy for a sector that is already under fire. Plus, why Tesla is quickly becoming the EV charging standard. And then later on in the show, Mark Zuckerberg looks to reassure shareholders and staff after Apple's big AR splash. It is Friday, June 9th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Thank you for starting your day with us. Let's kick off the half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures with the S&P 500 coming off its highest close of the year. However, look at the red here on the screen. Futures reversing course just a bit this morning off their lows, but still in the red. Actually, the Nasdaq just creeping very fractionally higher while I was just talking right now. But as you can see, futures under a bit of pressure this morning, kind of mixed to flat. All right, we're also checking the bond market. We are seeing some bond market movement as we get closer and closer to that Fed meeting next week. We're seeing the movement on the benchmark 10-year. This moved up about 15 basis points since the start of the month. Elevated yields on the two-year as well. We continue to watch that story. Also looking at energy, of course, it's always oil. Oil right now under a bit of pressure, actually reversing to the positive. I was just looking a minute ago. Um, up about a third of a percent for WTI, 71.50 right now. Brent crude at 76 and a quarter, up just about a third of a percent. Natural gas, however, still in the red. All right, turn our attention back to stocks. The S&P 500. It's exiting its longest bear market since 1948 after closing above that key threshold yesterday. And better days, it could be ahead, according to historical data. According to Dow Jones, the average returns for the S&P 500 one month after exiting a bear market, it's nearly 2%. And it only gets better from there, climbing on average more than 9% one year after that exit. For more on whether history could repeat itself, let's welcome in Vance Howard. Vance, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you? All right, so we're kind of spelling out S&P getting out of bear market territory. What does that say to you for the broader market to make some upside moves? I, I think we're in a new bull market, Frank. You know, you and I were talking, chatting yesterday. You know, the trend of the market's clearly up. The, the, our proprietary indicator, the HCM byline, went positive about three, three and a half months ago. So we've been entering the market at a rapid pace. We're 100% invested. And, you know, if you look at the Russell 1000, 2000, and 3000, this market's starting to broaden out, even though it was really tech-driven and fang-driven. I'm pretty optimistic that this is a new bull market, and I think that you should be fully invested. You know, Vance, you hit on something I wanted to ask you about anyway. Some investors, they've been very concerned about the narrowness of the rally. But as you mentioned, small caps, the Russell outperformed in June so far. We're going to show you a chart. It's the IWM that tracks the small cap index. That outperformance, something a lot of people are paying attention to today, at least. What opportunities are you seeing there? What is this upside move in small caps? What does that say to you? Well, like I said, it, it, there's some broadening out of the market here, and there's some wonderful small caps that are that are really re, that are breaking into 52-week highs, like a SMCI. That's a really nice little micro cap or stock in the super uh, microcomputer industry. It's going to benefit from AI also. So there's a lot of different stocks that are picking up steam and that are broadening out. So, and you know, you can look at the bank stocks too, Frank. You know, look at BK, like uh, you know, Bank of uh, Bank of New York Mellon. It's uh, it's selling at a 13 PE, and it was a real sort of a beneficiary or negative way beneficiary of the negative banking crisis. So you, there's an opportunity to pick up some good bank stocks down here, too. 
um, when this bull market starts to really unfold, it'll, it'll lift all ships. It'll start to broaden out and lift all different sectors up. All right. I want to go back to financials for a second. So you're seeing opportunities in financials. Is there, are there any other names or are you also looking at some of the regional banks that have been really beaten down? A lot of people say due to the fact that their valuations a lot better, there's opportunities there. I think there's a ton of opportunities in these regional banks. And, you know, Frank, 70 percent of all the loans out there come from these regional banks. So we have to have them. They're, they're, they're a vital part of our economy and, and, and what's going on in the, uh, the, the future of, of, of a credit and, and loans and small businesses being able to stay alive. But, you know, you look at BK, which is, you know, Bank of America. I mean, uh, well, uh, Bank of uh, uh, New York Mellon. You look at Bank of America. Bank of America selling at an APE. I mean, it's just, you know, this thing is really, really cheap as far as what they have is inside of value of that, that banking stock. So some of these banking stops have been needlessly pulled back to the point they're just really, really nice buys right now. So what about the regional banks? We're also showing the KRE right now. Would you put money into yeah. the regional banks? Is there any one regional bank you may invest in? You know, Frank, I would I wouldn't play a regional bank right now. I would play it play it with KR, KRB because you've got a broader basket there. If you have something unexpected happens to one of these banks, you've got a lot of diversification in there. Your odds are just more more are just higher of making money with less risk by by trading that ETF. All right, Vance Howard, thank you so much for being here. Great to see you as always. Hey, thank you, Frank. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Pippa Stevens, always great to see you. Good morning. Good morning, Frank, and happy Friday. Starting here with China, which is out with its latest inflation data overnight, showing an economy still struggling to rebound from its strict COVID lockdowns. The country's producer index in May fell 4.6 percent, its steepest year-on-year drop since 2016, when it fell more than 7 percent. This latest read is even worse than April when prices fell 3.6 percent. Consumer prices, though, only rose 0.2 percent. Meantime, General Motors striking a deal with Tesla, giving the Detroit automakers customers access to Elon Musk's more than 12,000 strong supercharger network starting next year. On Fast Money last night, GM CEO Mary Barra describing it as an important next step. When you think about the fact that, you know, Ford, General Motors and Tesla are all now on this charger, every American automaker, I, I think this goes a long way to, to getting the right uh, standard for, uh, the, for the United States. And I hope others will follow. But I think this is really important because from a General Motors perspective, this uh, almost doubles the amount of chargers that the GM customers will have access to starting, you know, in spring of 24. The partnership follows a similar one announced by Ford last month and is also putting pressure on pure play EV charging stocks like ChargePoint and EVgo. And shares of Carvana looking to add to yesterday's impressive gains after the company said its second quarter results would likely come in ahead of earlier estimates. The stock closed more than 50 percent higher yesterday. It's up another 5 percent, Frank, up more than 400 percent this year, but short interest above 50 percent. Yeah, big move right there for Carvana. It's been kind of a rough ride for this stock over the last year, but interesting to see this move. Pippa, thank you so much. We're going to see you just in a few minutes. All right, our Pippa Stevens. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, tracking the U.S. manufacturing boom following the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the stocks that should be on your shopping list. Plus, former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson, he's here, weighing in on whether or not the Fed could engineer a soft landing. And then later, as if lawsuits and asset seizures, if they weren't enough, new trouble this morning for Binance and Coinbase. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns.
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The Inflation Reduction Act spurring a boom in clean energy factory announcements. The credits in the bill, they could jumpstart jump start domestic manufacturing. Our Pippa Stevens is here with much more on the story. Pippa. Well, Frank, there's no question that the IRA and its incentives have already had a huge impact. Upwards of $150 billion has been invested across more than 40 new factories since the bill passed in August. This includes everything from solar and wind to battery plants. Now, these facilities are all across the country. Although we're seeing a concentration in the southeast as well as the Rust Belt, as this map from American Clean Power shows, some are now even calling the region the Battery Belt. There are a few reasons for these new manufacturing hotspots, including proximity to the expertise and infrastructure of the steel industry, access to nearby suppliers, friendly business climates, as well as historically cheaper labor. Notable announcements include Albemarle's lithium processing facility in South Carolina, Fryer's battery factory in Georgia, as well as Frank First Solar's new factory in Alabama and the expansion of its existing factories in Ohio. All right. So, Pippa, so far uh, we've seen some announcements. How far do they take us in realizing the clean energy aspirations of the entire country? Well, the aspirations are big, and the IRA has definitely jump-started this domestic boom, and there's no question that we would not see nearly this number of factories had it not been for that legislation. However, it's only a starting point, and it only gets us so far, because the reality is that these facilities won't come online for a few years, and so for the time being, we are still wholly dependent on imports. And that's one thing the administration is trying to tackle by offering all these carrots in the IRA to jump-start this manufacturing. And actually, the latest uh, industry report on the solar Solar market from Wood Mackenzie just out yesterday showed that solar was 53% of new electricity generating capacity in Q1. And so there is this huge amount of growth momentum behind it. And so for now, we are still heavily dependent on imports. So 53%, that's a pretty impressive number, but that's new. It's not total. So we got a ways to go, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Pippa Stevens, we'll see you later in the show. Thank you. All right, let's dive deeper into the clean energy sector, its winners and its losers. Let's bring in Sean Morgan, Managing Director at Evercore ISI. Sean, great to see you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's just start off. Uh, Pippa was just breaking down some of the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's start off with sectors. Um, Energy. How could this potentially benefit? What areas of energy could it possibly benefit? Yeah, I mean, so far, investors, I think, have leaned pretty heavily into the themes of of the PTC, so the production tax credit as opposed to the ITC. I think in the long run, you're going to have a a long-term federally uh, uh, uncapped uh, subsidies in both the PTC and ITC. Uh, but in terms of the production tax credit, the, the winners are, are really the manufacturers. If you kind of look at the U.S. domestic landscape for solar manufacturing, is really uh, First Solar is the only scaled-up player. Um, and as, as Pippa kind of noted earlier, uh, most of the production is still done abroad. So the question now is, is how much of uh, your, uh, foreign production, which is primarily Asian, is going to shift? And will, and will we see kind of vertically integrated supply chains start to grow in the wake of the IRA? And, and that's the that's the hope of the government. I think that's kind of our base case right now is that it is going to attract a lot of a lot okay. of new uh, capital. So you're saying first solar in particular is a winner. But in general, it's a, a broader tailwind for the solar industry, it sounds like. What about oil and gas? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the IRA, I don't think, was, was really particularly focused on oil and gas as much, aside from maybe uh, uh, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, I think could be a, a potential kind of medium-term winner, although 
um, you know, I think the biggest uh, long tail of, of the clean uh, energy transition is going to be on the hydrogen side. And I think that the green hydrogen is going to kind of win out uh, over like a 30 year period versus the blue hydrogen that, that would require uh, you know, some of these subsidies on the, on the carbon capture. So most of it's for alternative energy, including uh, uh, wind, the wind industry as well. So they're going to really benefit. Yeah, I mean, wind provides the generation, and I think you've kind of seen a dual track. I mean, part of the reason why you're seeing so much wind and and uh, and solar is, is goes back, you know, to sort of the Obama administration, but in in Europe actually, the German and Spanish feed-in tariffs really uh, flowed a lot of money into developing the sector, really took down the costs of of generation on a wind and, and solar basis. And the other thing that that those two types of power generation enjoy is that they don't have the, the variable costs of getting. Uh, minerals out of the ground and uh, as you do in the hydrocarbons industry. And so I think uh, we, we could eventually see that extended to, to uh, the hydrogen market, too, as electrolyzers get more okay. efficient. Um, and that, that's really, I think, the long-term problem for, for the uh, oil and gas industry. But it's still going to be a long-term bridge fuel. Let's talk more broadly about domestic manufacturing. Um, does the IRA change your outlook when it comes to uh, nearshoring or things being made here in the United States? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be uh, a, a growth driver for for U.S. production, which has essentially been, uh, you know, not really a very material pa- player in terms of manufacturing relative to our consumption of, of solar, for instance. Um, but I think uh, what what is interesting is is the guidance that that came out recently from from Treasury as to how what what percentage of the components on a cost basis for U.S. production uh, needed to be made in the U.S. and it was about forty percent. So. That's going to leave a, a, a lot of ability for, for, say, foreign manufacturers that have vertical integration outside the U.S. to decide where the cost is in their, uh, in their production. I think that's going to lead to a, a higher amount of foreign content making it in and getting the domestic adder, um, if that makes sense. All right. Sean Morgan, thank you so much for your time and your insight. We always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. A news alert for you right now. Wall Street Journal reporting that congressional Democrats, they are planning to introduce a bill that would overhaul the debt ceiling process. The journal saying that legislation is expected to hit the floor today. The paper adds that House and Senate Democrats argue that using the faith in the country's credit as leverage in the debt ceiling negotiations is both responsible and equivalent to taking the U.S. economy hostage. We're going to have much more on this story as it develops. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, Mark Zuckerberg. He's looking to reassure shareholders and his own staff after Apple's big AR splash. And he's taking a jab at that $3,500 headset along the way. Stay with us. Much more Worldwide Exchange coming up. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Now to a developing story and the pressures they continue to build for Binance and Coinbase following those historic SEC lawsuits. This morning, Moody's is lowering Coinbase's outlook from negative to negative from stable, highlighting, quote, the uncertain magnitude and impact of those SEC charges. And Binance says its U.S. customers will no longer be able to use U.S. dollars to buy crypto on its platform as early as next week. It's a hurdle the company claims will almost eliminate its ability to do business in the United States. CNBC tech reporter Mackenzie Sagalas joins us live. Mac, good morning. Hey, good morning, Frank. A lot of big money has exited crypto during this bear market and even more following those twin SEC lawsuits that you mentioned. But here in Prague, the focus is less on markets and price moves and more on the developers building the root level systems like Ethereum, the EU's progressive and pretty groundbreaking moves on crypto regulation and the places where generative AI intersects with decentralized finance. 
But in Europe as a whole, fintech is an even bigger topic of conversation. Earlier this week, I was in Amsterdam for one of the continent's flagship fintech conferences, where there was so much talk about the general slowdown happening in the sector and how companies are cutting back their spend significantly because they just aren't seeing a return on investment. Case in point, you've got venture capital and private equity backers reeling from a dire slump in technology valuations and softer consumer spending. Even once richly valued business-focused fintechs have suffered. You've got Stripe that just announced a $6.5 billion fundraise at a $50 billion valuation, a 50% discount to its last round. Checkout.com experiencing a 15% drop in its internal valuation to $9 billion, according to startup news site Sifted. And when you walked into that money 2020 venue in Amsterdam, it was easy to see a clear trend. B2B companies like Airwallex, Pioneer, and ClearBank dominated the show floor, while those consumer apps such as Revolut, Starling, and N26 were nowhere to be found, Frank. Mac, I see you're out there. You're really getting your finger on the pulse of things. I want to ask you about the fintech landscape over there in Europe. It really seems to be more disruptive than what we've seen so far here in the U.S. Any talk on that front this week? Yeah, so we've seen this dynamic where fintechs in Europe have really forced big banks to revamp their offerings so that every bank has an app. There's budgeting controls, contactless payments virtually everywhere, so more mega digital disruption than what we see in America. And that's partly thanks to payments regulation in the EU. Things like open banking and the likes are now pretty commonplace after a lot of banks fought tooth and nail to quash those reforms. All right. Mackenzie Sagalos, live in Prague. Mac, always great to see you. Great reporting as always. All right, let's get a check on this morning's headlines. NBC's Philip Mena, always great to see him as well. Happy Friday, Philip. Good to see you, Frank. Good morning. Happy Friday. It's the top story in America. Former President Donald Trump is yet again on the receiving end of a criminal indictment. NBC News has verified Trump's own statement on social media that he has been indicted by a federal grand jury in connection with special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. Sources confirmed that the indictment includes seven charges, including one related to the Espionage Act. It's Trump's second indictment in just over two months after he pleaded not guilty in April in the hush money case in New York. In later posts to Truth Social, Trump said he was innocent and dismissed the investigation as just another hoax. In other news, parts of the East are waking up this morning to another day of unhealthy air as massive clouds from forest fire smoke from Canada keeps drifting south. Air quality alerts are issued in most of New York State, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and parts of Ohio and Michigan. And finally, just as Ukraine launches its counteroffensive against Russia, Bloomberg reports that the Pentagon is preparing another $2 billion air defense package to the beleaguered nation. That's it from here, Frank. Send it back to you. All right, Philip, thank you very much. Enjoy the weekend. You too. Still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange, former Fed Vice Chairman Roger Ferguson. He's standing by to lay out a critical week for the markets as the central bank prepares for its next rate decision. We're going to tell you whether he thinks a pause is all but certain. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange will be back right after this. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Investors getting ready to close out a bit of a choppy trading week with the Nasdaq's six-week win streak now looking at risk. Futures pointed to some pressure at the open. And then, pause or no pause? Investors turning their attention to that big Fed policy meeting next week. Former Fed Vice Chairman Roger Ferguson 
He's standing by to lay out what the central bank may have up its sleeve. And incredible breakthroughs in AI. That is the view from Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. He's pulling back the curtain on what the company's working on in the white-hot space. It is Friday, June the 9th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Frank Holland. Thanks for joining us. Let's pick up the half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures with the Nasdaq on the edge of snapping its longest weekly win streak since 2020. But looking right now, we are seeing the Nasdaq just creep up in positive territory. The S&P and the Dow, though, very slightly in the red. We're also watching the bond markets. We've seen yields just creep just a bit higher as we've inched closer to that Fed meeting next week. We're seeing the benchmark 10-year at 3.74. It started the month at about 3.6, elevated yield on the two-year as well. Something, a story that we've been talking about and talking about. A lot of people thought those yields would come down after the debt limit deal. We also want to talk about oil. So oil on pace for a down week, but right now we're seeing it up, up about a half a percent for Brent, uh, for, excuse me, WTI right now at basically 71.65. Brent crude, that's the international benchmark, up a half a percent as well. 76 and just over a quarter. Natural gas, though, down 1%. All right, time now for a check on the action in Asia and the early trade over in Europe, our Juliana Tattlebaum. She's standing by in our London newsroom. Juliana, good morning. Great to see you. Frank, it's wonderful to see you as well. Here in Europe, we're off to a fairly sluggish start in terms of trade. Here's the picture. It's mixed in terms of the direction of travel, fairly contained at an index level. But we are seeing particularly heavy selling in the chemicals sector this morning. One name has stood out in the U.K., and that is Crota. The FTSE 100 is down marginally this morning, but that chemicals company down more than 13 percent. They issued a profit warning saying that they are seeing consumer care, their consumer care business down double-digit percent from last year in crop protection, which is another big area for the company. The year started out well, but the business is now experiencing a rapid customer destocking, and that is weighing on the broader chemical sector. So that's the real underperforming part of the market. We are seeing a little bit of green in the FTSE MIB in Italy and in Spain. That index is up about 17 basis points, both of those up about 17, 18 basis points. Now, in Asia, the focus was on data out of China. Here's the picture. Very different trade than what we're seeing in Europe. A clear positive signal. Hang Seng up for uh, five-tenths of a percent. The Nikkei 225 up two percent. And the mainland Chinese market, Shanghai Composite, up half a percent. This, as factory gate prices in China, fell by 4.6 percent in May. That was the fastest annual decline in seven years and the eighth straight month of deflation. Consumer prices, on the other hand, rose by 0.2% on an annual basis, but fell by the same amount on a monthly basis. China's weak inflation picture comes, of course, in stark contrast to the majority of the rest of the world, which is struggling, as we all know, with price pressures and inflation. Frank? Always great to see you. Juliana Tattlebaum, live in our London newsroom. All right, turning back to Wall Street here in the U.S., investors are bracing for a very busy week for the markets and for your money. The May inflation report due out on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, a critical Fed decision on rates. Interest rate traders are pricing in a nearly 80 percent chance the Fed pauses its historic rate hiking cycle. Those hopes, they pulled the S&P 500 out of its longest bear market since the 1940s. Joining me now, Roger Ferguson, former Fed vice chairman, former Fed board governor and, of course, a CNBC contributor. Roger, always great to see you. Thanks, Mike. Nice to be with you. All right. So, Roger, we've got to ask you, what is your outlook for this next meeting? You see a pause, a so-called hawkish pause, maybe even a rate hike. So I'm uh, not as convinced as the market that a pause is baked in. You just said that the market is pricing in an 80 percent expectation of a pause. I actually think it's a 50-50, very, very close call. 
But most importantly, the big picture is even if they do pause, as we've seen with other central banks, that does not mean that they're over. Uh, and so the market chill, I should, I think, brace itself for a Fed that is going to continue to be hiking, even if this one happens to be a pause. And I think the pause here is really a closer call than the market currently expects. You know, Roger, that really is a contrarian opinion. I haven't heard a lot of people say that. I think some people even believe we may see uh, a cut later on in the year. So what's giving you the sense that we could see a pause and then another hike? Is it something, some data point coming out later this year? No, it's the data that's already out. Okay. Uh, so markets continue to be, labor markets continue to be tight. Approximately 1.7 to 1.8 uh, jobs for every unemployed person, uh, far higher than the norm. Uh, uh, wage rates continue to go up, both in terms of what's measured in the big numbers, but what I'm hearing anecdotally from f- uh, fellow CEOs. Um, and so I think overall the, the picture is one of inflation and inflation pressures that are higher and stickier than the uh, 2% number that the Fed has been uh, aiming for. So I think it's the data that's already here that's okay. telling us more hikes on the way. Yeah, it'll be interesting to get that inflation report the day before they make the decision. I want to ask you about another big macro thing right now. Uh, what's your outlook on the possibility that the U.S. avoids recession? Goldman Sachs finding a more than 70 percent chance we avoid one. But then you look globally at the same time, China's having economic issues. The eurozone is in recession. What do you think could possibly be different for the United States? Um, there are a couple of things that might be giving some hope for a probability of a soft landing. One is that consumers here continue to be relatively robust. Um, there is what's called a wealth effect. So equity markets actually have done pretty well in the first half of the year. Uh, as I already indicated, wage growth still expected to be relatively strong. So those are some of the things that are, that are positive for us. I think the things that uh, might lean towards you know, more of a slowdown and maybe a, 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 a short and shallow recession, basically, as the Fed has more work to do, and with inflation being sticky, possibly having to raise rates and actually force us into this short and shallow recession that others have been predicting. So I'm still in the camp that a recession is a real possibility, short and shallow one hopes. Okay. Uh, but, you know, let's see and let's hope Goldman is right. Well, Roger, let me ask you, is a short and shallow recession, is that the same thing as a soft landing? And do you think that possibility is also priced in, that there could be an economic downturn, just not a full-blown recession and the markets are still moving higher? Yes, I think that's also a possibility. I've seen some economists to throw in a new phrase, uh, talking about a growth recession, which is, you know, growth underneath potential, but not yet dipping into those negative territories. So we're now making sort of fine distinctions, growth recession, soft landing, short salary recession, all those things sort of have the same feel. Uh, which is, you know, whether or not you get a technical recession call is frankly less important than the fact that growth will be far below potential, which is what's going to be called for to get inflation back down closer to the 2% target. All right. So you mentioned the market should, should possibly prepare for another hike later on this year. When do you see that hike happening? And uh, you know, I know you said the data is already out there, but we are seeing inflation decline. Why isn't that good enough? The, the Fed's also mentioned the banking crisis is something that's disinflationary. I think that's a word. Uh, but reducing inflation as well. So what's going to happen mm-hmm. later that's going to give them the confidence to hike again? Look, I think we've seen it in a couple of other uh, of the central banks that were sort of early, early pausers. So the Bank of Canada and the, uh, the Royal Bank of Australia, uh, both, or Reserve Bank of Australia, both um, took a pause and now have returned 
to a hiking process? And the answer is that the labor market here continued to be very, very tight. Wages, which feed into particularly service sector inflation, are things that the Fed is still looking at. Um, and so, you know, it may well be that you know one or two more hikes might be baked in. And I certainly do not expect them uh, to cut later this year, as the market seems to expect. All right. Roger Ferguson, a bit of a contrarian view. Always great to have you here. Really appreciate your insight. Have a great day. All right, let's get Thank to you. the morning's top stories and a number of headlines come out of Meta's all-hands-on-deck meeting. Our Pippa Stevens is back with those. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Frank. Well, a lot of headlines there from Meta. CEO Mark Zuckerberg touting, quote, incredible breakthroughs the company has seen in its AI ambitions in that meeting with employees. Zuckerberg and other Meta execs detailing some of the company's efforts to incorporate generative AI models into its metaverse, including how the technology can help create the 3D visuals for the virtual world. The company also plans to debut a service for Instagram users that will let them modify photos via text prompts and share them in the app's stories feature. And Meta also plans to eventually include the ability for users to engage with more sophisticated AI-powered chatbots as a form of entertainment with its Messenger and WhatsApp services. Zuckerberg also touching on plans to get Meta back on track and the wave of layoffs the company has faced in recent months. According to The New York Times, Zuckerberg telling workers that he wants to, quote, use this period that's going to be a bit more stable in order to evolve and rebuild our culture. And Zuckerberg also touching on Apple's Vision Pro, saying the device didn't present any major breakthroughs in technology that Meta hasn't already explored. And Apple's expectations of how users will use the device is, quote, not the one that I want. A lot of news coming out of that meeting, Frank. Uh, certainly. I think we'll be talking about this, uh, what is it, mixed reality we're supposed to call it now, <laughs> yeah. AR, VR, whatever it is. Pippa, thank you very much. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, labor problems creating fresh supply chain issues at key ports here in the U.S., and they're showing no signs of easing. We talked to one analyst about the stock seeing a direct impact from the contract standoff. But first, as we had to break, some of this morning's big money movers we start with a downhill slope for shares of Vail Resorts, reporting worse than expected Q3 earnings. Some of its resorts in the Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic regions closing earlier than expected due to unseasonably warm weather and a lack of terrain. Revenue also falling short of estimates with some categories such as food and beverage still not back to their pre-COVID levels. A positive mark for DocuSign, signing off Q1 on a positive note, beating on the top and the bottom lines and making a handful of C-suite hires and new service offerings. But the company warning, it's seeing the impact of smaller deal sizes and lower expansion rates across the business as customers. They really scrutinize their budgets. And shares of Tesla, they're revving up once again, posting its 10th straight session of gains and marking the company's longest win streak since an 11-session run that ended back in January of 2021. Tesla also closing yesterday at its highest level since October on the back of strong sales data out of China. Don't miss a CNBC exclusive interview with notable Tesla investor Kathy Wood at 7.30 a.m. Eastern today. Worldwide Exchange will be back in just a moment. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Now to a developing story as we continue to watch the key shipping ports out on the U.S. West Coast. We're now seeing the longest labor-related disruption since 2015, and it could have a ripple effect across the broader economy. Negotiations between port employers and union dock workers, they're approaching one year without a contract. According to marinetraffic.com, as of this morning, there are just about 46 ships anchored outside the ports at Long Beach and 20 around the ports of Oakland and San Francisco. 
Some of those ships, they've been waiting as long as nine days to be unloaded. The average wait times, they're normally between 12 and 36 hours. Joining me now with more insight into the situation is Amit Marotra, Air Freight Surface Transportation and Shipping Analyst at Deutsche Bank. Amit, always great to see you. Good morning. All right, so give us a sense. Give us some perspective. How big of a deal are these disruptions? It's not complete disruption, but certainly a work slowdown. Um, is it a big deal in perspective just overall? And what does it mean for the broader economy? Well, I think it's unfortunate. I mean, there's no doubt about it being an unfortunate event, but this is nothing like the backup that we saw during the height of the pandemic, nor the slowdown and, and backlog that we saw way back in 2015 when uh, the West Coast ports had a similar situation. Um, the bottom line is, Frank, is demand and freight flows today are very, very weak. Um, so, yes, there is a backlog on the West Coast, but uh, the demand environment is nowhere near um, where it was over the last few years. And so uh, while uh, this, this negotiation and the, how it's evolving is unfortunate, um, we think um, you know, it's probably the best time to happen given demand is so weak. And ultimately, we think a deal will get done. Uh, yesterday, according to some trade magazines uh, or trade uh, articles, uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Oakland were already back to normal scheduling. It seemed like the, uh, the problems were really centered around Seattle. Uh, but the bottom line is we think the deal is going to get done relatively quickly. Um, this, will, this will pass, and we're all waiting for freight flows to improve. There are longer-term implications here that I think are quite negative for the West Coast ports, but generally as it relates to the, the movement of freight across our, our, our networks, I'm not too concerned, and I think the deal will get done pretty quickly. Okay, interesting you say that. Uh, we did see similar disruptions, I believe, around Easter time a few weeks ago, but this one definitely more extended than that. But overall, you're saying if it was going to happen, this would probably be the best time. So I want to talk about uh, pulling the thread that you're saying it's not great for the U.S. West Coast ports. What does this mean for the U.S. West Coast ports, and is that important for the broader uh, logistics economy here in the United States? Well, we, we here at Deutsche Bank have written a lot about um, you know the reorganization of how ports uh, come, how imports come into this country. You know, it started really with the expansion of the Panama Canal many many years ago, but also because of this inconsistency um, of of negotiations between. Um, uh, the West Coast ports and the Pacific Maritime uh, Association. Um, so we're seeing market share really uh, divert away from the U.S. West Coast ports towards the West Coast of Canada um, uh, and also the East Coast, uh, Port of Houston as well. Uh, all these other ports are making huge infrastructure investments here for people okay. in New York. You know, the Bayonne Bridge was raised to allow bigger ships so the bottom line is, is that we think there's a, a restructuring of the of the imports away from West Coast to U.S. ports. All right, so uh, that, certainly that something. Not yeah, All right, certainly something to watch. Um, so uh, that makes me want to ask you about some of the buy ratings you have on a few stocks. Um, you have a buy rating on Night Swift, a big player on the West Coast ports. You also have a hold on Union Pacific and J.B. Hunt, huge players in the West Coast ports. What's your long term outlook on those companies? Well, right now we are in a very, very weak freight environment. We do believe that it is darkest before dawn in the transportation landscape. Um, the transportation sector this year has outperformed the industrial uh, peers by 800 basis points. So we are about as bad as it can get right now. And really, there's only one direction to travel from here, which is positive. So we're quite positive generally on the outlook for transportation stocks. 
J.D. Hunt, which is a buy rating for us, we think has huge secular growth opportunities. Union Pacific is in the middle of a of a new CEO search, and and Night Swift um, is 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 a really great trucking company that's uh, in the middle of a very very weak environment right now. So I think the market's a discounting mechanism. We're trying to be forward thinking, and at the end of the day, we're looking for what the outlook is or what the circumstances are six months from now. And we think, without a doubt, it will be much better than where we are today. All right, Amit Marotra of Deutsche Bank, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate the insight. All right, time now for your morning call sheet where we check on a few of this morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and stocks that you likely own. We begin with Pivotal, raising its price target on Netflix to a street high of 535 a share from 425. You're seeing Netflix shares up almost a percent. The firm says Netflix represents a unique tech growth story given it remains well-positioned to generate solid subscriber and revenue-free cash flow growth even in a potential global recessionary environment. Wells Fargo upgrading Adobe to overweight from equal weight, given the company's, quote, improving competitive positioning, new product cycles, and a best-in-class margin profile. Shares of Adobe up almost 2.5% this morning. And City downgrading Target to neutral from buy. City says 2023 is showing that sales have peaked and are likely to fall further, creating a, quote, give-back situation. Target shares down 1%. All right, coming up, the one word that every investor needs to know today, plus Rose Advisors Patrick Frazetti lays out a critical week ahead for the markets and the one stock bubbling up his spirits. But first, June is Pride Month, and CNBC is celebrating all month long for sharing stories of corporate leaders with you. As we head to break, here is Grinder CEO George Arison. We know there's so much attack and hate at the community today happening from um, lots of places in that context, Grindr going public in November, uh, I think speaks uh, to a lot of very positive things. The extent to which we were celebrated uh, on Wall Street when we went public and the amount of support we've gotten since being public, I think, is, is really fantastic. Uh, here's a company built by gay people for gay people, um, where, you know, the CEO is gay, uh, married, and with children. Grindr's board has uh, nine members in total, six of whom are gay, who are lesbian, who are trans, and to have a board like that, I think is a really powerful testament. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Live shots from around the world this morning. We're looking at London, Hong Kong, New York, and Washington. You may notice the skies in New York a bit clearer than they were yesterday. Still seeing some impacts of that smoke from the Canadian wildfires, but it's beginning to clear up. A beautiful stay, start to the day in Washington. A uh, bit of cloudy skies in Hong Kong. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It's time now for what we like to call your WEX wrap-up, six stories you need to know before the opening bell. We begin with pure play EV charging stocks like ChargePoint and EVgo. They're under pressure this morning. This after General Motors announced a deal with Tesla to give its customers access to the EV Maker's supercharger network starting next year. China out with its latest inflation data overnight, showing continued struggles to rebound from strict COVID lockdowns. The country's producer index in May fell 4.6%, its steepest year-on-year drop since 2016. Pressure is continuing to build for Coinbase. Moody's this morning lowering Coinbase's outlook to negative from stable, highlighting the impact of the SEC charges. The Wall Street Journal reporting congressional Democrats are planning today to introduce a bill that would overhaul the debt ceiling process. The Journal saying backers argue that using faith in the country's credit as leverage is irresponsible. FDA advisors set to vote today on whether or not to give full approval to ASA's Alzheimer's drug. The vote coming after the agency announced data from late-stage trials showed the drug offered meaningful benefits. 
And shares of Carvana looking to add to yesterday's more than 50% surge after the company said its second quarter results would likely come in ahead of earlier estimates. Looking at Carvana right now, shares up more than 5.5%. Turning back to the markets, gearing up for the trading day ahead. Taking a peek at the futures, we have seen a bit of movement in the futures. Right now, the Nasdaq back in the red. We saw it just move fractionally higher earlier. Right now, the Dow would open up about 60 points lower. The S&P also fractionally lower. The S&P really fighting to hold on to gains this week and notching its first four-week win streak since last August. The Nasdaq, meanwhile, on pace to break its six-week win streak. For much more on the markets, let's bring in Patrick Frazetti, Managing Director at Rose Advisors at Hightower. Patrick, good morning. Great to see you. Good morning, Frank. So what do you make of what we're seeing right now in the futures? We saw the Nasdaq just dip highly, you know, dip in the positive territory just a bit. Also, the S&P in the red just slightly, even after it's kind of moved higher yesterday. What are you making of all this? Well, I think it's a pretty fragile market. I mean, the entire return this year has been driven by seven stocks in the S&P. When you look at the, you know, the rest of the market, it's been pretty flat. And so I think that's a sign of a, a pretty fragile market. And we have, you know, many things to think about in the months ahead, not only, you know, a trillion dollars in U.S. Treasury issuance, but I think we could potentially have a, a weakening consumer. All right. So you're speaking of a weakening consumer. I want to talk to you about student loan payments. They're going to restart pretty soon. According to the Fed, the average payment's just about 300 bucks per person. I know you've seen data and stats that it might be even higher, but either way, it's an incredible, it's an increase in money that people have to pay out and student loan payers are like 20 to 30. I mean, there's a, uh, to 40, 50, it's a big range there. What mm-hmm. stocks or what sectors do you see that student, student loans being repaid having an impact on? Sure. Well, I'm avoiding uh, you know consumer discretionary stocks that look expensive right now. I mean, I'm avoiding names like Lululemon or Canadian Goose. Uh, names like that, I think, are going to have a lot of face a lot of headwinds uh, in the months ahead. Uh, when you think about that weakening consumer and increased you know student loan base, I mean. You know, I when I look at someone who's you know has a bachelor's degree, I mean their average student loan payments probably higher than three hundred bucks um, once these payments restart. And like you said, these these consumers, it's anywhere from someone who's you know from twenty to fifty years old. Um, these are you know these are the folks that have been spending in this economy, and I think that that's going to be a headwind more broadly for the economy. And those more expensive uh, discretionary stocks could be in trouble. All right. So it sounds like you're seeing some headwinds. You just called everything fragile. With that in mind, what is your Wex word of the day? Uh, I, I say energized. And I only say that because we could see some, you know, some more uh, stats on the energy market later today. We get the rig count. And I think the energy market is something to pay attention to. So is there any particular part? We had actually our Pippa Stevens here talking about alternative energy. We've seen some movement in the oil markets as well. Is there one part in particular that you think investors should focus on? Well, I'm still focused on oil and gas. I think that's one area where, you know, in an inflationary situation, I think you should be paying attention to to oil and gas. We saw the Saudis, uh, you know, cut production or announce a further production cuts earlier this week. So I think that's going to have an impact on the market. All right. Any other parts? I mean, oil and gas, um, you know, obviously it's been kind of volatile. We've seen a big move last year, some some uh, headwinds to it this year. Any other parts of the energy market that you think people should look if they're trying to put some money to work? I still like infrastructure. I mean, if we're going to look at, you know, 
onshoring and reshoring uh, across the market, I think we have to, to look at infrastructure, the export of, of LNG and, and other products in, in a market where supply chains are going to be diversified, you know, in the years ahead. I think you want to look at energy infrastructure. All right. What about a stock pick, Patrick? We love you when you come on. You have some stock picks. Give us your pick. Yeah. So we talked about the consumer um, earlier and, and the potentially weakening consumer and potentially some headwinds for the economy. So I like Diageo. Uh, Diageo is in the spirits business. Good dividend, good uh, buyback program, uh, good you know, good stewards of capital, and good economy, bad economy. They're in the spirits business, and those products are consumed um, in both situations. So I, I think it's attractive. It's been weaker, um, you know, in this sort of post-COVID normalization environment, uh, inflation pressures. But I think a, a business like this, with free cash flow, pricing power, barriers to entry. And you think about, you know, an inflationary environment. I mean, these are companies that have invested in their inventory uh, for many years. And so I think there's a lot of value there as well. All right, Diageo, maker of, I believe, Johnny Walker, Don Julio, a lot of well-known brands. But they don't really have that premium category. Interesting pick. Patrick Frizzetti, great to see you. Thank you for the insight. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. we got Squawk Box coming up next. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.